Hi there, thanks for joining us and welcome to another week of the High Performance Podcast. A lovely message this week from uh, Twitter saying, great listen, what a legend, amazing insight on perspective and controlling negative thoughts. That was sent to us via Apple Podcasts all the way from Australia after someone listened to the Chris Hoy episode. Uh, Jeff Abro, also in Australia, we've got a few listeners on the other side of the world, says there's no better podcast for learning leadership and what it takes to reach the top. And we also had a message from Onslow 100 saying, as we try and find a way through these weird times watching lives and livelihoods being torn apart and finding such strength from this podcast well i hope this week you find plenty of strength as well because we've got a really interesting episode lined up high performance is really simple you know you, you look at the best and biggest athletes the best and biggest companies they keep it really simple they have real strong cultural values and they stick to those values and they measure themselves against those values so when when we we drew up a new set of values at the start of the this season it's the only thing i hold the team accountable for anything outside of that is my fault yeah. but the the values that and they wrote them themselves not me that i wanted them to write them and so anyone steps out of line now we just we'll put them up on the wall and we'll hold you accountable to those values everyone on board easy and that makes coaching easy as well because you don't have to get them into line and say well you forget didn't, didn't tell me that you get the charter out, you get the values out, and, and you hold yourself accountable for the values that you, that you want to instill. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, I'm Jake Comfrey. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. And look, you can't do a job like this alone. Thankfully, Damien Hughes, professor, lecturer, author, super brain, is alongside <laughs> me. Uh, this is going to be interesting today because I think our guest has got a lot to say and it's a man who has seen his world, his football world, through a kind of myriad of, of different roles and different positions. Yeah, I think often, Jake, um, when we speak to our guests, we ask, ask them from one particular perspective, whereas our guest today has seen it from, um, from the ground floor level right the way through to ownership level as well as head coach along the way. So I think we're going to get a variety of different perspectives. Okay, well, let's do it then and dive into a conversation about living a high performance life with someone who, well, basically they come from a sporting dynasty. His dad was a professional cricketer. His sister, a previous guest on the pod, delivered one of our nation's most iconic sporting triumphs. And alongside his brother, he enjoyed a professional career that delivered a stunning amount of silverware, international caps, and then eventually the honour of managing his country. Welcome to High Performance, Phil Neville. Very well. Nice to have you with us. Nice. Big shoes to follow in my sister. Yeah, I know. She was great, actually. She, I mean, I'm sure you've listened to she it. She talks right? a lot, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. <laughs> does. And we're going to talk about life with the family, actually, okay. as, as, as the pod goes on. But look, you've, you've played, you've coached, you've managed, you're a mm. part owner as well of Salford City. You've seen football from almost every single angle. So in that world, in that football world and in your world, what do you believe high performance is? High performance for me is is doing the right thing every single minute of every single day. 
people talk about mental toughness and 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 mental strength. Mental toughness, mental strength, high performance is actually doing everything perfect all the time. And I know you're going to have days when you don't feel your best, but I think the best athletes, the best trainers, the best performers that I've worked with and played with and coached are the ones that do everything mm. perfect every single day. From the minute that they get up to the breakfast that they take, to the to the water that they take in their car on the way to training to get their hydration right, to the stretching, the prehab, the, then they go into the training ground, never late, they wear the, the right clothes. It's that consistency every single day of doing the right thing. And for me, that that's high performance. You can be born with unbelievable ability. You can be born with not much ability. But I think the the real standout are those that do it every single day. And there'll be people listening to this that think, yes, I'd love to hear that. I'm going to live a high performance mm. life when I've finished listening to Phil on the podcast. But maybe the issue for them is trying to work out what doing what doing the right thing or doing the perfect thing is. I think that's the stumbling block. We all want to be perfect, but oh, how do we work out what it is? So for you, what do you believe doing the right thing is and being perfect in every aspect of your life is? Do you, do you know, I go back to the values that my parents set us and then obviously followed on at, at Manchester United. And, and I never even thought about this until I became a coach. And people, as soon as, I, as soon as I finished my career, I used to do interviews, podcasts or seminars. And you say, what was Alex Ferguson like? And I spent probably about six months thinking about what was he like? What were my parents like? And I'd say that the biggest thing I learned was the simplicity of actually uh, everything that they did. The simplicity of working hard, being polite, saying please and thank yous. Uh, I listened to something that Sean Dyche said about manners, the way you dress. Sir Alex Ferguson was an absolute stickler. No jeans on the way to train. Look, the, the minute you walk into the training ground, look at, behave like a Manchester United footballer. And and jeans was a big one for him, you know, because in that probably generation, jeans were seen as scruffy. Everyone wore a shirt and tie. That's why Manchester United wear blazers because it was that, it was that uh, attention to the simple things in life and, you know, hard work enjoyment, big thing. Last thing he ever said to us before we went onto a football pitch, the last thing my mum and dad said to us before we played for the under-11s in Bury, just go out there and enjoy yourself. If you're not enjoying yourself, you're not going to play well. If you're not going to play well because you're not enjoying yourself, please go and play something else. So it's the simple things. And, and the values that I have with my team now are hard work, humility, uh, enjoyment, simple things that I think are the, the, the cornerstone, the foundation for success. And there is no recipe. I actually sometimes think you're not actually born with a certain amount of uh, sort of talent. You, you actually, you develop your talent, you enhance your talent, and then you, you train your talent to be the best. And when I talked about high performance before, it's, it's okay doing it for one day, two days, three days. I actually want to see it for the whole of your life. And that was Sir Alex. Sir Alex was the best. My, my, my dad was, was an absolute, the most laid back, hardest man ever in terms of, if you didn't say please and thank you, if you didn't take your plate away, if you didn't thank your mum for your tea on your table, if my gran and granddad picked us up from, from the football practice and we didn't give him a hug to say thank you and make him feel appreciated, that was when he would come down as like a ton of bricks. He knew we'd have bad games. He knew we would probably get out for a duck at cricket or or score an own goal, which which which, which I did. But it, it was that attitude to always giving your best. What was it that you saw your dad do? Because I know Tracy spoke about, he set yeah. the example in terms of his five o'clock start. Get out of bed early. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of bed early. You know, it, it was almost like, I'm going to get out of bed early when everyone's sleeping. I'm going to work harder than everybody else. And that was his mentality. Yeah, there, there was a, there was a, I think it was Floyd Mayweather, as I was saying, that I train when everybody else is sleeping. It was almost a little bit like that, is that he worked for a haulage company that had to drop uh, suitcases to London. He did five or six uh, drops in London at Debenhams, John Lewis, whatever. And he had Monday to Friday to do it. And he used to always do it on a Monday. He used to do it all in one day, get up at three o'clock in the morning and attack the week. And, uh, and and he, we said, well, why don't you just take your time? I've have, have a stay in London because he got all the expenses. And he just said, why wait around to do a job when you can do it in one day, do it well, get back. And then he would work probably Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, doing something else, earning more money to, to put food on the table. And it was that type of mentality that he, he told us. We, we, we used to come on from training at 16 and, and the youth coach used to always say to us, if you want to, you can come back and train with the under-16s tonight because we were obviously 16 to 18. And he, was, he would dangle a carrot and we'd come home and we were shattered, you know. And uh, 
let's get back to training ground train and and that was the mentality of getting back and doing more and doing extra and uh it was no secret secret sort of like uh recipe it was just see there's work. a nice story you told there that that reminded me of a story i've heard you tell before phil about when a nutritionist at united had suggested that you needed to eat at four o'clock in the morning and have weetabix yeah that so it could digest in your system mm -hmm. on a game day I remember saying that you and your brother used to set your alarm to get up at four to eat Weetabix. Yeah. <laughs> to do that. Well, the, the funniest story was when we, we suddenly started to go on the train down to London and uh, we'd eat at one o'clock in the afternoon after training. And then it was always like five, six meals a day, little and often get, get, you know, get your carbs and your protein inside you. And on the train, they didn't have bowls or cereals. And, and we was told at the time that cereals were the one that would give you the most carbohydrates as a snack. So we, we, we used to get onto the train and people playing cards. And then at, at what, 4.30 every train on the way down to London, me and my brother used to steal a ball from the cliff training ground, get the ball out, box of cornflakes, and we got hammered. Hammered every single day. You can imagine on a bus when we'd steal in a bowl from the canteen, we'd have some milk off the train for the, for the tea. And that, that was sort of like, well, we was told at 4.30 we had to eat and, and carbohydrates was the best with cereal. Yeah. I remember hearing Alex Ferguson talk about seeing... Um, once in the cliff training ground, seeing players gathered against the wall and it was you and your brother doing extra running on your own and they were yeah. catcalling you. And he remembers being taken by your mental fortitude that, mm. you, that you would do that regardless of the Mickey taking and yeah. the abuse that you get. How did you learn to override that that idea of just fitting in with the pack and doing your own thing? Because I suppose when, when we was... Uh... 14 15 16 and we we're at school we 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 made great sacrifices then and and like I say you you see your friends going out with girlfriends and going out drinking or, or discoing and and we we suffered a, an awful lot of probably mica taking because we weren't that person we were always different we were always ready to make the sacrifice to be successful the biggest sort of like challenge i had was when i went to everton because i i went to everton to to a team that, that had a brilliant manager but didn't have the mentality probably at that time of, of the players at Manchester United in terms of doing extra. So I used to go in the gym at 9.15 and nobody was in the gym. I used to go out onto the training pitch half an hour before everybody else. Nobody was out there. And for a year, yeah, I was called teacher's pet. Moise's little boy doing it for show and I was like actually this this is what I've done for the last 10 years. There was a moment when you sort of like shall I, shall I just go into the pack? But I never wanted to be in the pack. Our, our mum and dad never wanted us to be just alongside everybody else. And they wanted us to say, look, if you're going to make it, you're going to have to make that many sacrifices and, and, and go through a little bit of pain to get to where you wanted to do. So ultimately, it became part of my motivation as, as that I'm working harder than you and I'm preparing harder than you that are sat upstairs having toast or going out to a disco. So that was part of my motivation. And and, and my, my players at the moment, uh, you talk about women's football, there's a change in professionalism from how it used to be to now where there's a lot of things on offer for them, uh, physical training, nutrition, and it's pushing them beyond the boundaries of, of the Sir Alex Ferguson quarters. If you only do what your coach tells you, that is not enough. So you come into training, coach puts on a session, I've done everything now, the experts have told me what to do. Actually, it's the 10, 20% you do away from that that I think sets the, Ronaldo, the Ronaldos apart. So if there was a young person listening to this, that whether it's they want to do better at their studies or, yeah. they, or they wanted to pursue a different career and they've got the temptations of going out with their friends or mm. all the other sort of distractions, what advice would you give them to help them forge their own path rather than just go with the herd and follow what everybody else is doing well i would say the first thing you need is a direction which you want to go in you need to you need you know if you, if you want to be a designer or a lawyer or, or a top surgeon if, if you really want it then you've got to sort of like have that tunnel vision and and put everything to one side and and i think it's that that sets people apart of you know where do you want to go on your holidays do you want to go to blackpool or do you want to go to the moon and if you want to be a surgeon then you've got to dedicate your life to becoming a surgeon and putting all the hours in the practice and 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 that takes a lot of mental strength and when we go back to mental strength before mental strength is actually doing the right things all the time not just not just monday to friday it's saturday sunday too the parents always used to say to us if you've got a dream go for it but commit 100 to it don't go half-hearted at it don't cut corners and become that person that does 12, 14 reps and just 10. 
you know, and, and it's the extra four, four to six reps that you do that are actually going to make the difference of, of you becoming what you want to be or just being part of the pack. Is there a slight challenge for you, though, that you were growing up um, and you were seeing your dad grafting and driving mm. to London, yet you've made an awful lot of money? Your brother's made an awful lot of money. Yeah. Your family are, are very well off. You've had great careers. So how do you instill in your children that fight and that spirit? Well, it's it's the biggest challenge that we've had as a parent. Uh, we give them everything. Mm. But actually, I thought I had everything. Even though my parents, we lived in a, in a terraced house in Berry, I actually thought we were rich. I thought, because we used to always get new trainers, new claw, uh, new new cricket bat. But the thing is, is when when I, I wanted a, a new Cookabra bat when I was 13, I was playing for England in about six weeks' time. And I, and I said, I think I saw Ricky Ponting or Mark Taylor, an Australian, with a Cookabra bat. And I said, Dad, I want one of them Cookabra bats. He said, you've got to earn it. Go out there, score runs. And I'll never forget, I, I scored 100, then a 50 the day after he came home with a bat for me. I had to earn everything that I I, I, uh, I had. And that's what I say to to my son and daughter now. I mean, they can have anything they want, uh, but they've got to earn it. And uh, they, they have to work as hard as they possibly can. I mean, during this lockdown, we've never allowed them a lie-in past eight o'clock. And that might seem that might seem cruel, but we 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 want them to we want them to get out of bed in the morning with yeah. a, with with a thirst with a with a hunger to to go and do their Zoom classes to go to my son go to the training pitch and does it do his extra work and yes he's he's had a bit of off time but he's probably only took three or four days off because ultimately I wanted him to drive it himself and I wanted uh, my daughter to get up out of bed in the morning. We, we as a family train before breakfast, that's our mentality. That's our, since they were five, we've, we've always tried to get them up before breakfast to train. Love that. And, and I'm Love like, that, man, we struggled to get out of the house. And, and, and we're always late for the school And run. my daughter, my daughter's got cerebral palsy. She's, she's, she's disabled. And at five years of age to get, who, who struggled to walk, she had a K-frame, to get her into the gym to do her core exercises, to do her leg strength was, it was hard. It made you cry some mornings. But ultimately now when she gets out of bed and goes and does 5K, I'm like, it was worth the pain back then when we was five or six. And we used to do core sessions and we used to, on a Sunday morning was out, was the one morning I used to say to them, everybody else is lying in today. Sunday morning is, is our time where, where we would go do 100 lengths in the pool or, or do something that would get them into the frame of mind of, actually, we've got to do this to succeed, the hard work, the determination. And and now my son goes out training on his own and never very rarely, unless unless he wants something unless we I want something like a game of football I want them to be motivated themselves not because I'm taking him to a football pitch so Phil I, I, I'm interested in that idea of when you went to Everton then yeah uh, that you're going in and you're setting your own standards and like how did you eventually persuade others to come along with you a couple of things really you either people see you and think mm, I'll have a bit of that and I, I never forget Tim Cale Lee Carsley, uh, Mikel Arteta, uh, the, the, you know, some of them, oh, I like that. So they come out and play football with you, come out and do some passing with you. And then all of a sudden there's a bit of a Pied Piper effect. And then you either bring them along with you or you change the players or the people within your organisation. And what, what David Moyes did, and, and Everton finished in the top four, so I'm, I'm saying there was a great team, but he wanted to change the culture. He brought in Andy Johnson, Jolyon Lescott, Phil Jagielka, Leighton Baines, Tim Howard, hungry young players that all of a sudden was 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 in this culture that he wanted to create hunger determination hard work so i think when you're when you're in a a team environment you you assess the hunger and, and the drive of your of your workers or your team and then if it's not doesn't fit the culture that you want and they won't change with it, you've got to change the people that are in that culture. And, and that's what David Moyes did. He changed the whole culture. And what happened was he changed the team, younger, fresher team. And we also moved training grounds from Belfield that was that was really part of Everton's history. And they did some things a certain way to then Finch Farm that was state-of-the-art, gyms, pools. And all of a sudden the culture just flipped. But when we went there, you had to have a team of people going there that could embrace that new culture. I think, I think that was important. And you had to have a manager that had the vision to do that. I and mean, that's really important is that he knew he had to change the culture of getting into training, going upstairs, having a piece of toast, reading the newspaper, waiting until 29 minutes past 10, going out to the training field. He wanted, he wanted to change the whole culture of the club. 
How aware were you that what you've described there sounds an awful lot about like the impact that Eric Cantona had when he came into mm. United? Now, I know you were still in the youth team at that time, but how aware were you that there was a similarity in what you, like you were the Cantona figure? <laughs> in, no, I think, I think what happened was at United was that Sir Alex did want to change the culture and he did like the academy had changed that 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 work ethic was there but obviously we were young players but he had to have he had to change the culture in his first team and and Cantona was was almost like here this is what this is what the top players do and we at united we had the best players you know in scheme were there but this is what the best players do and, and you, people talk to me about Cantona what did he used to do he used to get a ball get a wall and just kick a ball against the wall, left foot, right foot, control it with the outside of his foot, drag it to his right, uh, play it to with his left. It was just like like simple drills that made him so good on a Saturday. Somebody would cross a ball into the box and he would hit, hit volley after volley, but it was just simple. Do you remember the goal that Scholes scored against Bradford? Oh yeah, Beckham drive, Scholes volley. Now that, that, was, that was as simple as after every training session, somebody on the left wing just pinging a ball into an area where the D was and him just, just lashing a ball 10, 15, 20 times. It wasn't, it wasn't like you think individual bits of brilliant coaching training. No, it was just, it was just repetition of simplicity. And uh, that's what, that's what Cantona was. He trained every single day as if it was a World Cup final. Every single pass mattered. Every single touch mattered. And 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 then afterwards, he did his twelve to fourteen reps extra that 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 made him the uh, one of the most influential uh, players at Manchester United. See, there's a sort of theme repeating itself here because when we first said, you know, what do you think high performance is? Mm. You said it's about doing the little things right again and again mm. and again. And then we watch an incredible goal scored by Paul Scholes and think, wow, there's some genius behind that. Mm. We talked, we sit here and talk to you 15, 20 years later and you're like, no, it was exactly what I described at the beginning, yeah. the focus on the tiny details. And I think sometimes in life, we want to get somewhere and we see the destination and we think, well, that's out of reach, it's impossible. Mm. Because we can't see the tiny steps and if we just made those little tiny steps, we'll, we'll get there in the end. You know, if someone had said to you 20 years ago, you'd be managing the national team. Yeah. You'd go, well, that, that feels right up there, right up yeah. high in the sky. Tiny steps, going to Everton, yeah. being a leader, going to Valencia alongside your brother, seeing that it can be difficult. The time you spent at Salford is, you know, mm. running things there. All of them, tiny steps taking you to a, a grand destination. That's it, life. Do you know what? It, it's, it's the, de the destination is where you want to get to, but you actually don't focus on the destination. We always focus on the process, the process to get there. And the process to get there is actually really simple. It's, it, it's just when you miss stages out on the way to your destination where people, because what people want to do, they want to, they, they want to, at the start line, they just want to jump to the destination and miss out the process in between. And I, and I say to my players all the time, because when we was at United, Ronaldo was the biggest example of someone that from the outside you think god-given talent doesn't need to work hard just turns up on a football pitch looks a million dollars and just goes out there well there was one day i mapped out a day in the life of ronaldo put it on this on the flip chart for the girls at the start of my reign and in the day of ronaldo there was only an hour in the day where he was coached the rest of it was him self-driven, getting to training early, doing his weights, doing his abdominals, doing his massage, going home, employing a chef to look after his nutrition, going to bed for three hours in an afternoon. Ultimately, the, the, the day in the life of Ronaldo, for me, is a perfect example of when you see him doing the stepovers after every training session, training session finished, extra training, then he would take a ball around the whole circumference of Carrington Training Ground, doing his stepovers, uh, jogging pace, walking pace, drag backs, step backs, Cruyffs for every, and that was like 3K round of training ground. Day before the game, he would do it. And people say, oh, God-given talent. No, that lad used to yeah. watch YouTube clips of a skilly light and then he yeah. would go and practice it. Then he would take it out on the training ground. And that lad got absolutely booted every single day off Skulls, my brother, Keane, Van, he used to get up, never more one bit. The, the most mentally tough player I've ever played with. So from all the things that, that you've seen, and Ronaldo is a great example, do you believe anyone can live a high-performance life if it is as simple as breaking your life down into tiny, tiny bits and doing the process right? Absolutely. Absolutely. In any, in any job that you go to. But like, like my dad was a long-distance lorry driver, and I would say that he lived a high-performance life as a long-distance lorry driver because, you know, there are certain disciplines that you need, sleep, 
when you when you're getting up at three in the morning uh, obviously the the ability to drive five six hours a day like it was back then the ability to to go to 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 deliver and and he did everything right because what he wanted to do he wanted to be the best at his job so what are you like then with excuse makers who say well i could do that but this has happened oh, they, 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 they don't get picked they don't, they don't play a part in the team and, and you give them a chance and you try and educate them. Cause I think education is really important because sometimes people don't know, like you said, at the start, they don't know what best practices, they don't know what, what actually elite looks like. So you teach them, you educate them on what elite looks like. And if they don't jump on board and they cut corners, then, then you, you, you quickly move on to the next play that you think mm, she, he or she has got it. I think it's a good message for people though, isn't it? That you can just break it down. And to hear someone like Phil say that anyone can live a high performance life, hopefully people will, will listen to that and take it on board. Well, definitely. I think it's that. I think what's really jumped out of what Phil said there is that you can have an outcome of where you want to get to, but the process has to be right along the journey because otherwise the outcome is flawed. You have what about to... when you start the journey and you start the process and things are difficult? Well, there's a great saying, isn't there, that like, you should always be fixed on your outcome, but be flexible in the route that you take to get there. So you have to change, you have to adapt. And... Do you have to expect failure on the, along the way? I think failure's uh, needed, in a way, along the journey. And I think, I think it's very rarely that in, in a lifetime that you don't suffer some kind of failure. And I think it's the failures you learn more for. And I think the adaptability on the road, the road isn't always straight, and, and the adaptability on the road is is crucial when i got to 23 i played a game and and shearer just absolutely bullied me every time a ball came into the box elbow bullied him and i, and I remember going home saying I, i've got to I've, i can't just get through on my ability now i i've got to do something different and then sat down with the snc coach we had a 12-week program of building me up uh, becoming more robust I'd never touched a weight until I was 24, never done S&C. And Charlie just didn't really believe in it. He wanted you to be the best footballer out there. And all of a sudden, you had to adapt to another way of training, another way. And then, then when I went to Everton, there was another adaptation period there of thinking I was going to spend the rest of my life at one club, then going to another club with who had different expectation levels. And I had to soften my approach to people probably because... Uh, again, you go back to the education about their standards against your standards, which made me an even better person. I've got to say, uh, better person, more adaptable in my thinking and warmer in the way that at United was just ruthless, cutthroat. Mm. You're not up to it, out, out you go. If you're not good enough for this bus, you're getting off the bus. Where at Everton, you had to, you had to help people get onto the bus. You had to give them a handsome. You struggle with that at first. Uh, Yes, I did, but I actually loved the part of actually trying to help people because there was players at United like Steve Bruce or Robbo or, or even Keno to extent. They were that person at United that helped dragging them along. I was dragged along at times at United by better players than me. And they did it in certain ways with, with some players, you have to be tough on them with others. You have to do it in a different way. And that's where I started to learn about the man management, the connection with someone, understanding the person rather than just the guy that played bad on the Saturday. Uh, and that was my biggest learning really at Everton was that there was, there was players of different levels, ages, family situations were different. They live, they live further away. United, we all live within three miles. We were family. Everton, we were traveling from an hour and a half away with different types of problems. So I became more flexible in my thinking when I left United. So what were you like when you left United? And then how would you describe yourself by the time you left Everton then? What would you say was the biggest I think change? I had a closed mindset at United. We were cocooned in an environment of just pure winning, and nothing else mattered in life. Ruthlessness, ruthlessness, win. Uh, defeat felt like the end of the world. Defeat felt like there was a death in the family. Uh, where at Everton, th th there was a more open, more, I, I developed a more openness to my thinking. United, we hated everyone. Everyone outside, the, outside our bubble, they were the enemy. They wanted to, they wanted to do us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This throws up an interesting question that my wife has often challenged me about this when we're doing the podcast of how important do you think being well-rounded is to being a high performer? Well, I, th- I think you've got to relate to, to different people. I think that that's, that's a necessity because 20 years ago, it was all English players, all UK-based players, all probably had the same type of upbringing, middle-class upbringing. Now you've got people from different environments, real, religion, gender, or whatever. You've got to relate to all those different people. And I think that's where the best coaches now are, those that can relate to different types of people even more than the tactics and the systems that they do on a Saturday. I think the, the connection with the person is actually more more vital than actually anything else. And to do that, you need to have a great understanding of people, emotional intelligence, and uh, so that is a skill. So to apportion it then, Phil, for you now as a coach, how much would you weigh as a coach the credibility of speaking about tactics and game plans versus the ability to engage and to be able to speak to different people from different backgrounds? What would you weigh... The percentage, yeah, I, I heavily. The, the tactics is a is a small part of I think right. the tactics in the system is a small part of of the percentage pie chart that you would want as a as as a manager manager of people. Uh, you, you've got to sat there. You've got to manage eight hundred people. You've got to connect with eight hundred people plus eight hundred million people around the world. Yeah. So when you're speaking to the media doesn't matter what system tactical genius you could be. You've got to inspire everybody. In your football club, you've got uh, an owner that probably lives in Singapore, in USA, that is watching this uh, interview that you've got to, he's got to say, I, I'm putting all my money and I trust that guy in front of the microphone speaking. That's not systems and tactics. That's that's connecting and, and being able to manage people, organisations. And, and in the, you talk about Premier League, you've got to organise institutions. And, yeah. and that that is more than just a system or a tactic. And I think when you look at Jurgen Klopp, uh, Pochettino and, and Pep, the best managers are those that when you turn on the television, you might, I've never met Jurgen Klopp and I'm thinking, I'd like to play for that guy and I would run through that window for that guy because of his persona, his ability to inspire you, his body language, the way that, you know, at the end of the football game when he walks on that field, every single player smiles when, he, when he's approaching, they don't just turn a deaf ear to him. And, and that's what I think management's become. But I think, and this isn't, um, blowing smoke at your backside on this. I, I think you had a moment like that after that Cameroon game mm. where you came out and it was the most passionate I'd seen you talking about the, the behaviour of the Cameroon players yeah. had fallen some way short of what you expected. Do you know what? Do you know what? The actual the game before was my best moment as a manager what? was when uh, two of my players' mothers had died in the same year. One one had died, it was a birthday on that day, and there was another that had died, and it was the first ever game she'd played in a major tournament, and she'd been to four major tournaments. And and in the huddle after the game, we didn't speak football, we spoke about the pride in in the mother watching from, from above. And I'd say that beyond football and stuff, that's the connection that I'd say is, is my best bit of management is that I knew that them, I knew what they were going through. Carly, my goalkeeper, had her mum's uh, initials and stuff on her wrist. She was a goalkeeper. She taped her wrist and put a, a little message from her mum. 
Frank Kirby has, has suffered a lot from the death of the mother years and years ago, and that was her mum's birthday that day. I actually was thinking of resting her for all that game and then thought, no, it's her mum's birthday. There's, there's going to be something special happen tonight, and that girl has to be on that field. And that that was probably against my plan three months before when I said, second game of the major tournament, poorest team was playing, we'll rest our, one of our best players. But actually, that was a moment where you think, hmm, that's a special night for that girl. And that, that girl has to be on that pitch and she has to go through the emotion of doing something really special for her mother who had been looking down on her. And that, for me, was was probably my best bit of management in the two years I've been with the with the Lionesses because I think it was like, it felt special, you know, because it was more than football. And it's an example, isn't it, of, of how much the game has changed. You know, thinking of two previous guests that we've had on the podcast, Rio Ferdinand, who said that, when Ronaldo's dad passed away here at Manchester United, Rio was just thinking, just get back here, start training. We've got a game of football to win. That kind of, sing as you've yeah, said, yeah. single-minded, ruthless desire to win and nothing outside football and Man United matters. Now compare that. And Rio, is, Rio actually admitted on the pod, you know, I, I wasn't emotional enough. I was kind of almost robotic in my desire yeah. to win football matches. Compare that with what you're talking about now and the conversations that we had on this podcast with Maurizio Pochettino, who, as you know, believes in universal energy. And mm. when we were with him, we all, you know, he, he sort of touches you and he holds on to you for a long period of time and you almost uncomfortably so. And you're thinking, what's this about? And then he explains, I'm, I'm, I'm reading yeah. you as a person. I'm feeding yeah. off you. I'm understanding you. I'm, I can w work out whether you slept well by, yeah, yeah. by, by your, your demeanor. How different is this conversation to the sort of conversations we would have had around the world of football 20 years ago? It's fascinating. You're dead right. My, my, my father died. He went to Australia, watched my sister. I flew out, turned the machine off, flew straight back, went to work the next day because that was, that was what I was told to do. Not show your emotions, not, suffer, not, not have a period of acceptance. And I'd say that still to this day, I've probably never really had that, that ability to actually grieve. But Sir Alex was... 20 years ago, he was ahead of his time. He was, he was Pochettino 20 years ago. We, we, I, I went down to, we used to go down to the cliff training ground and, and he would come down 14 years of age, school of excellence at night. He would come in, he would know every single parent's name. And, and when, and when you've got every club in the country chasing you, your dad's just gone, you've got to sign for this guy because he knows that I would play cricket at the weekend and he knows that your mum's called Jill and he knows that your grand and grandma work on the car park at Berry Football Club. That goes beyond systems and tactics. That, that That's a, somebody that's got the most great emotional intelligence that connects with the family. And, and, you know, the stories he used to tell us about if you had a problem with a player or if you wanted to sign a player, meet the mum first convinced the mum that you were going to look after her son. And he, he had that unbelievable ability of, uh, you know, getting your first, my, my first signing on fee. You've got to give it to your mum and dad. No, no, I want to buy a, got to give it to your mum and dad. You would not be here today if you did, if you didn't have your mum and dad straight home. It was, it was funny because me and my brother, my mum and dad got two signing on fees, but <laughs> the, uh, that's what we said to him. Can we split ours when we did all right? <laughs> yeah. I love it. The Lamborghini was outside. But the how much of it felt? Like, I've, I've, I know Chris Casper works yeah. for you now at Salford and I've heard Chris speak about this idea that the hairdryer that people attribute to Sir Alex often wasn't used. It was just mm. the sense that you just didn't want to let him down. Yeah. So how much of it was just that, uh, that idea that you just didn't want there was to let an aura. him down? There was definitely an aura. Still to this day, we, we, we went out at Christmas. We, we, we went out for a meal with him. And literally, uh, it, was, it was after he'd recovered from his uh, operation and stuff. And, uh, and we, we, we took him home. I took him home in the car and, and the, lads, the lads were in the back seats, uh, Gary and Scalzi and Giggsy and Butty. And he was sat in the front seat and literally I, I was perspiring. I was perspiring. <laughs> he was sat next to me in the front seat. I'm 43 years of age. I'm England women's manager. And I literally, I'm that stiff. I can't turn left or right. And he's going, turn left, turn right, turn left. Don't go this way, son. Don't. And literally gets out the car and, and we're all just, wow, thank God for that. We got him, we got him home in, 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 in safe peace. But uh, he just had a great aura about him. And uh, So I don't think people think of him as being an emotional character they think of him as being a hard guy that got the yeah. best out of you but I, I think from what you're saying he plugged into the emotions of the players and the players families probably 
long before a lot of other managers do. And I think now it almost feels like the norm that you connect on an emotional level with, yeah. with your players. He did. He loved the background of a player, of where where they came from, what's their, what's their upbringing was like, because I think it told him a lot about the character of what the player was going to be. Uh, and I suppose it does if you're from a working class background and you've had to fight really hard and you've, you know, you've played street soccer. It, it tells you that you've got somebody that's not going to give up. Who's it sounds be like you do tough. the same though, the way you were talking. You about have your to, players. you have to, and 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 it's like to get the best out of your players. It's it, it's so easy just to get a bunch of players into a training ground and say, oh, just do this, do that. To actually inspire them. When I walked onto a training pitch, I wanted to be inspired, and and we 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 say we say now to the coaches that. Every single time that you are involved or, or touch a player, a, a, a meeting, a bloody video analysis or a conversation, we call it every session's got to be a masterpiece because that's that's how you inspire the this generation. They want to be inspired. They see so much. They want to be excited. And to, to inspire someone, you've got to be in touch with actually what inspires them. I'm interested to talk about your son because I think that you're in a, you're in a really interesting position here where... Your son plays for Manchester United at, at youth level. So you are primarily his dad, but also you can see his career through the eyes of someone who's done exactly what your son wants to do. Yeah. And as someone who manages young footballers as well. It's the balance is amazing. How do you manage to inspire your son mm. without making him feel overawed, without applying too much pressure for him to achieve what his dad and his uncle did, which is play for United? I think I think the pressure bit is is that I very rarely go and watch him. I'll always sit down with him on a Sunday and he always likes to show me his clips or go through the game because it's on MUTV. That is really important to him that I sit down with him on a Sunday. But in terms of sort of like the going to a Saturday morning game, very rarely go and watch him play. Is that his decision or yours? Mine. Mine because uh, when he goes out onto the pitch, I want people to be looking at him, not me in the stand or, or, or to be singled out. So, and have you asked him whether he, that, that works for him? I think he wants me to go and watch him. I really do because his mum goes absolutely everywhere with him. He, he, she's she's absolutely obsessed with being there on the sideline when he when he suffers or when he does well, someone to look over to because that's what we had. But ultimately, uh, when he was eleven, he was he was at United like satellite, and and City asked him to go to their satellite. I said no straight away. Over my dead body, are you going into that football club? And he said, I'm going, and. My dad said the same, you can't play for Man City. And then my brother said, Phil, you've got to let him create his own pathway. He just said a little flippant comment. So I went home, I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to go to Man City, so you go. And I actually had more fun going watching him play for Man City because he wasn't playing for the club that his uncle and his dad played for. Then I did do now actually watching him play for Manchester United because every time I see him play, I feel the pressure. Yeah. I feel the pressure of what he's thinking. And does he? I mean, I imagine when he goes into Carrington or wherever, there are pictures of you around the place and pictures of. Uncle he he never talks about. I've got to say, he never talks about it. Never discusses it. It was his. It was his decision to sign for Manchester United. And 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 I do take a step back. And and sometimes he'll say, "Watch my clips. What do you think?" And, and I've just been brutally honest with him. And, and it's the honesty that uh, hopefully will stand him in good stead. I guess in some ways, the fact that he has to, Phil's son has to deal with this challenge at an early age is no bad thing, is it? It's kind of equipping him for actually what life is like under the spotlight. Yeah, very much. I think, I think it, it sounds like he's in a fascinating position because you've got a frame of reference that he knows it's possible to get there. He sees the evidence every day, but then he, he has to learn his own way of... That's hard as well, though, isn't it? Because... His dad and his uncle did it. So if he doesn't do it, that's... It's funny because when when you, obviously in the academy system, you get reviews and some of the things that they tell me that he's done surprise me because he, he comes home, he doesn't give much away, he goes up to his room and he, he's literally just forging his own career. But ultimately when when he's, he's overcome obstacles, he, he was in Spain for three years playing in a totally different type of culture uh, tippy tappy football different way of different way of coaching they come to to england it took him six months and he kept sticking with it he kept sticking with it and and he's come come out the other side now a lot tougher mentally there's there's many of uh, a footballer that's not going to make it but what I, what i always say to him is that if you if you keep these values you'll be successful whether that's at Manchester United or at MK Dons or as a as a fitness coach whatever you want to be you will be successful if you just keep these values and uh, 
that that's that's the only thing I hold him to. When Jake mentioned in his introduction, you've got a fascinating perspective from a range of different cultures and different teams. So how universal are some of these values, whether it's from your experience in Spain or now coaching mm. uh, women's football? How how universal are these are these values you're describing? The universal thing is is that the the values work in every facet of everything that I've been involved in, and uh, even in business, even at Salford City now, yeah. you know, we, we, we're talking about even this hotel. You're talking about the 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 main the main feedback we get at this hotel is that people say hello, how are you? They know the name of the customer. That was the first thing we said. Know the name of every customer that comes into this building. If you've booked a room when they come in, you've got to know their name and where they've come from. It's a basic thing, but it's a big thing, and and that has stood us in good stead. Sometimes we overcomplicate things. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we look too deep into things when actually high performance is really simple. You know, you, you look at the best and biggest athletes, the best and biggest companies, they keep it really simple. They have real strong cultural values and they stick to those values and they measure themselves against those values. So when when we, we drew up a new set of values at the start of the this season, it's the only thing I hold the team accountable for. Anything outside of that is my fault. Yeah. But the, the values that, and they wrote them themselves, not me, that I wanted them to write them and took about a month to do. They presented them to write, so anyone steps out of line now, we just, we'll put them up on the wall and we'll hold you accountable to those values. Everyone on board, easy. And that makes coaching easy as well because you don't have to get them into line and say, well, you didn't, didn't tell me that. You get the charter out, you get the values out and, and you hold yourself accountable for the values that you, that you want to instill. How's your relationship with failure? How hard are you on yourself? Do you actively seek failure because it means that you know you're at the, at the point of learning? The, the one thing that I've always, uh, before you go into a game or you go into a coaching a game or you be going to a big moment, my, my, my mind thinks about the failure because that's, that's the thing that kicks me on to not failing in a way. And, and I always go through a, a process of thinking, if this goes drastically wrong today, what are the consequences? And then you think about like, how are you going to handle that? But actually I use that as a sort of like motivational tool. Sir Alex, the minute you came into the dressing room after a game, you moved on to the next one. So you you didn't allow any time for moping. There's a psychologist called Gary Klein that talks about this idea of pre-mortems, mm. where if you work out what can kill you before you the event, you can then work out how you're going to handle the moment when it happens, Yeah, which it sounds very much what you were doing, that you were working out what are the consequences of failure here? Can I live with it? And then that way, when it happens, you can move on. It's like I think about the worst thing that can happen or, or defeat and think, right, so I work that hard now, it's never going to happen. So, so it's almost use it as a motivation never to go there. Yeah. Never to go there because, you know what, I'm not going to like that feeling at all. So, you know what, I'm going to work my damned hardest today to make sure I don't have that feeling. And uh, Have you ever taken your foot off the gas to the point where you go into a situation and you fear you haven't worked hard enough, you haven't prepared well enough? Once. Once at what Manchester United, we, we played a pre-Champions League qualifier and uh, I played all pre-season and uh, we went, we were playing out in Hungary. He named the team in the morning, Sir Alex, and uh, I wasn't in it. We played Wes Brown and I was devastated. The only time I've ever been affected by selection, the only time I've ever not really had that, just get on with it, Phil. I remember going back to my room. I didn't have my normal pre-match meal. I ate more than probably what I, I normally would do. I then went back to my room I was on the phone all afternoon when I'd normally have a two, two and a half hour, three hour sleep. I watched television, came down to pre-match, didn't have my normal pre-match meal. I've got to say, I didn't wear my lucky boxer shorts. I, I'd, I'd gone in a way, two minutes into the game, Wes Brown breaks his ankle. I go onto the pitch, play the game, last minute of the game, ball comes over, missed the ball, they scored, we lose one nil. And I never forget Roy Keane running down the tunnel, just having a go at me. And I remember just not hearing a word, just thinking, I deserve it. And, and that was the biggest kick up the backside I've ever had. And a brilliant bit of learning for you as well. I mean, how old were you at the time? I was, I was 24, 25. And you're now 40... 43. So that's 20 years ago. Yeah. And you haven't done it since. I mean, never. That, never. Talk about learning from your mistakes. Never. I meant the ball. I meant, never forget the ball coming over. And whether I had the third bread roll in my pre-match, I couldn't get <laughs> off my feet, but it just skimmed my head. Guy went through, scored. And we, we won the replay. Uh, we won the second leg, but that, that was like... I never forget Wes Brown going down. I was on the bench. I was a bit of a sulk on. He went down, broken ankle, and I went, oh no, I'm in trouble here. 
I'd like to just go through a few um, <clears throat> periods in your career just to find your biggest bit of learning from those. Mm. Very simple. The biggest sort of bit of learning you took away from your time at Manchester United. I think the biggest thing was, is that there is actually life away from Manchester United. That yeah. was the biggest learning because uh, it, it was and still is the biggest part of sort of like our family. We're Reds. We're, 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 where they lose, we lose. And when I left, driving down the, the East Lanks Road, I, I was like, I thought it was it. I thought it was the end of the world. And then I realised actually there is another world out there. And actually it made me a better person and it made me more rounded and it, it made me grow up more and more mature because dear me, these Sir Alex just put a blanket around you and, and just protected you. And I think if I had to left United, I want to go to uh, Valencia. If I had to gone, if I had to left United, I want to do the women's job because I think it just, it was like, if I grew going to Everton, yeah. oh, dear so me. So the I, biggest bit of learning almost at United was when you left. Left, yeah. yeah. Wow, definitely. And then when you went in, when you went into Everton, what was the biggest learning there? I was on the phone with John Ruddy, the Wolves keeper, this yeah. morning, and he said, "Oh, I love that you've got Phil on. I'd love to know when he decided to get into management because when he was at Everton with us, it was like he was already a manager, first in, last out. He'll be perfect for your podcast. So obviously, you did impact those players. He still remembers yeah, your well, dedication. The, the biggest influence was David Moyes. David Moyes was like. It was your dressing room that this this is what I want you to do and third game in he made me captain and I remember please don't make me captain it's too early just let me have 12 months like and the dressing room was like teacher's pet Moise's little boy oh he's coming here he's in his little grass and all this business and and he was firm I've come in here and I'm going to change something and you're going to be the one that polices that dressing room and drives that dressing room and his his belief in me was incredible from the minute I walked in, or as I say, the minute that actually he asked my father for me to sign, then the, from, from even to this day, his belief in me is, is has, ne has been unbreakable. From the time he took me to United as a coach, the trust he given me was was probably the, the like no other coach has given me, and and I think that was massive for me. I think biggest learning from the time at Valencia. I think the biggest learning was how to treat people that wasn't part of your inner circle how to make them feel, how to make them part of your group and actually to be honest with people. Even if it's bad news, they'll have more respect for you than to just stringing them along. And that was my biggest learning because it was the best probably learning period of my career uh, in terms of sort of like the management side because it was it was a time when I was assistant at United, assistant at Valencia. Then I took Valencia for two games and then my whole life changed because I thought I can never be assistant ever again. I've been in a dressing room when they all looked at me and I loved it and I wanted to be on that touchline being the man. And I actually thought, that is where I want to be, not behind the man. So so that was my biggest thing. And finally, with the Lionesses? I was speaking to uh, somebody last night about uh, the Black Lives movement at this yeah. moment in time, is that until you've lived in the shoes, you never know how they're going to feel. And I went into the uh, women's job and, and my sister... My sister used to say all oh, this and that and the other year, and used to say, ah, get on with it. You'll be all right. Oh, you were on the telly last week. You'll be all right. Yeah. And then when you're actually living in the shoes of a female athlete, you think this is not right. The, the prejudice, the, the homophobia, the, the sexism, the, 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 the lack of equality. Every single day is a fight. You fight like you possibly can to make things better for a group of girls that are the most unbelievable group of people I've ever been involved in all my life. Yeah. When I was a footballer, my sister used to come home from these camps and she used to go to training on a Sunday morning in East Grinstead, three hours there, three hours back. Ah, oh, well done. How are you doing? Good session. But actually, you look back now and think, how ignorant. Ignorant was me and my brother to like actually what she was going through. Why, why didn't we put a driver on for her? <laughs> you know, why don't we put a driver on for her? Why, why don't we, why, why don't we, why, why don't we fund, fund something a little bit better back then that they're now getting now? And I can actually sort of like relate now to people saying, oh, we've made great strides. Oh, we're doing okay. Still, my girls are fighting every single day now. We were winning. We, for two years, we were beginning to break down barriers. I think we've took a massive step back now and people have forgot female sport. No netball, no hockey, no female sport played for the last three to four months. Not even on the agenda of any boardroom in any sport, yeah. in any industry. Correct. To change that, you're going to have to change at the top. You're going to have to get females, you're going to have to get 
black people on the boards before it starts infiltrating down. So it's been the biggest learning experience ever. When, when in my first camp, normally when you you get a new uh, new player and you sing a song and everyone films it, and it's they stand up there and they speak about their career, their life, their obstacles. And literally, there was one girl, Abby McManus. I never forget. She stood up there. She told the journey. I had tears in my eyes. She was a kit lady. Then she got changed and went out onto the pitch, then came back in and washed everyone's kit. And I was like, that didn't happen. Do you know what I mean? But, but we were ignorant to all that. So now when obviously I'm coming to the end of my time with the Lionesses, I'm thinking I'm not finished with promoting female sports, uh, women's athletes. And people say now, oh, you're going to jump back into the men's game. No, no, actually that's not a foregone conclusion because if you've coached that type of player, it's probably better than coaching a, a male player at times because you know what? They listen, they learn, they want to get better yeah. and their attitudes are phenomenal. So Phil, we normally do a quick fire round at the end. So what are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into? Hard work, uh, enjoyment and please and thank yous. What advice would you give to a teenage Phil just starting out? Enjoying it a bit, enjoying it a bit more. <laughs> just relax a bit. Have you learned it. that now? Yeah, enjoy it a bit more. That there is more to life than just obviously uh, playing football for Manchester United or being a professional footballer. Are you happy? Yeah, always happy. How important is legacy to you? I think it's important. Whenever you leave a job, you want to you want to leave something behind that will make people think. You know what? He improved us. When I've played or been managed by great coaches. The first thing I think of, Moise, what a guy. Alex Ferguson, he phoned me when my dad died. He was there when my grandma, you know, he came to my wedding. Being a good person is the most important thing. And what's your one golden rule for people to live a high performance life, Phil? I think you've got to commit. I think you've got to commit to doing the absolute best you can every single minute of every day. I think that that for me is is the one thing, is that you, you've got to do everything that you do of every single minute of every single day to the best of your ability. Listen, thank you so much for being on the thank podcast. You. One of the standout things for me is that it's so interesting. You came from a family where both you and your brother and Tracy all ended up living and competing in a high performance life. And whatever it was that your mum and your dad did, which we've spoken about, um, it absolutely worked. And I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this who will um, have their kids in the gym at 5.30 every morning before school. <laughs> Seeing where the one them. learning. Absolutely. But thank you so much for thank taking you. the time to join us thank on you. High Performance. Thank you. So Damien, Jake, you know what stands out for me there is he is a guy who has managed to create this mindset where he's going to achieve big things, but he's going to do it by focusing on the little steps. And that is a brilliant takeaway for anyone. Oh yeah. The process will always trump outcome that if we only get focused on our final destination, we can often trip and fall along the way. Whereas like you say, this idea of focusing on the small steps keeps everything controllable and gives you a constant sense of momentum and progress. And I don't know about you, but one of the big things for me, and I'm not sure I'll be able to implement it with my two kids, is this idea of, as a family, going to the gym before breakfast in the mornings. I mean, that is a remarkable thing to get your kids to do for a start, but it absolutely will instill in those children a work ethic. And obviously, his dad had a big impact on him and his sister and his brother. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if he has a similar impact on his children. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting point that we were talking about, about that his children have a very different life than what he would have grown up with and maybe grown up with more privilege or more opportunities than what he would have necessarily had. But I think, like you say, that idea of instilling, you still have to get up and work hard, you still have to do the basics, you still have to commit, was something that even that family exercise session embodies all of those values that has made him successful. And I think he is going to go on to be successful because this stems right from childhood. And then he played under one of the most successful managers in the world. He's got a great sounding board, I'm sure, in his brother, Gary. He's now managed for his country. He understands a modern athlete. I, I think the Phil Neville story is far from over, actually. Yeah, and I think what really impressed me uh, with Phil was, was his innate intelligence, not only to have had those experiences, but to have reflected on them and to take the important lessons from it. Well, once again, Damien, really nice to sort of sit and listen back to what Phil had to say. We've got loads of comments coming into us after people heard the episode last week. Are you happy to dive straight into the um, digital post bag as it is these days? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I'm really interested to hear what people are saying. All right, well, there's one here, actually. This this works quite nicely because you know how Phil 
constantly talked about processes and steps to achieving great things. Um, this is a message that's coming to us from Joe Batten. And he says, the latest High Performance podcast was excellent. I love the message that the key is in the details and that rather than a philosophy as such, saying, if we attack this way, we'll defend like this, shows great adaptability and trust in players. I think that maybe he was listening to the Sean Dyche episode that we had as, as part of series one. But I think the key for me in that is that some, sometimes it's kind of hard for, for us to hear people talk about an overarching philosophy or a belief and things. But then you don't have any idea how to get there. So when someone talks about little processes and little steps, I think that's a really important message that that's all it is for everyone, little steps. Yeah, I think that that is a really good point there from that listener that's been kind enough to share that feedback. I think what what this format is really good and it sort of opened my eyes is that rather than these guys being having to deliver a soundbite or a message in just a couple of minutes, we're giving them the space and hopefully the time to really expand on their philosophy. And you find that so many of them, a lot of it might sound like common sense, but they're happy to share the common practice of how they've made it a reality for them. And I get feedback off people that say they love that level of detail and the subtlety and the nuance of it. So I'm delighted that other people are, are recognising that. And I'm pretty sure that in one of your books, I've seen a diagram where you've got a straight line from A to B. And then you've got exactly the same distance from A to B, but it looks like a stairway, like steps. And I think sometimes it can be so daunting for people who want to be here or, yeah, who want to be there, but they're here. And they kind of see it as one leap from A to B, whereas what we have to try and do, I guess, and you can probably explain this in better detail than me, is is break that 100 yards into 100 steps rather than one one leap. Yeah, so the way to think about it is that when we think about climbing a mountain, we see the outcome that that's the outcome goal of getting to the top of the mountain and the thrill and exhilaration of getting there. The performance steps that we have to take are things like how fast we're going to get there, how high is it, what equipment we need, and all measurable things. But the bit that is really important is the process goals. And this is just the, what's the first step you're going to take? What's the next step? And it's about breaking it down into those small processes of putting one foot in front of the other. And if you do enough of that, it hits your performance and you'll get the outcome that you desire. So we need all three types of goal setting, outcome, performance and process. And I'm actually a real big believer in making sure you enjoy the process as well. Like one of the phrases I use all the time, whether it's on the, on the telly or in front of my kids, is is savour it. And I think sometimes that can sound a little bit trite, can't it? And a bit like, ugh, savour it. But what it actually means is like, if you want to achieve something, you're going to spend a hell of a lot longer getting to that goal if it's something that's hard to achieve than you are arriving there you know the process can take years and years and years and I think if we don't get ourselves into a place of enjoying the journey then we've missed out on a whole experience of, of what high performance can be yeah and you, you know like I'm sure you're in the same boat as me on this date that we've met people that have maybe made fortunes or they've won gold medals or they've achieved real success and and then they often talk about the anti-climax of that moment once you've achieved it once you've got the million pounds in the bank account the question is, well, what's next? And so the fleeting element of outcome goals, if that's all we ever seek, we're on what's called the uh, hedonic treadmill, that we're constantly just chasing the next hit, the next achievement, rather than enjoying, like you say, the journey of and embracing the grind of the everyday stuff that gets us there. Love it. Um, thanks to Jason Keane for sending in a message to say he's been uh, inspired by the High Performance Podcast and that this is the big stuff. It took a few seconds off his run this week listening to Chris Hoy. That's what, <laughs> that's when we know we're having an impact. Brilliant. Um, customer success. Matt says, really wasn't sure I was going to enjoy this one, but I loved it. Great attitude towards coaching and just being a decent human being. He'll be talking about the uh, Sean Wayne episode. And by the way, after appearing on the podcast, Sean Wayne has joined Twitter, so feel free to follow him. I like this one from Gary Kearney. He says, and he just sent us the quote from Alexander Trefor saying, the best teachers are those who show you where to look, not those who tell you what to see. And I think that was from probably watching the Robin Van Persie episode. I, Gary works in football, doesn't he, Damien? Really well-renowned and respected youth football coach out in the States. He's a, he's a guy from Northern Ireland that has got a phenomenal reputation in youth sports. So I'm delighted that somebody of his stature has enjoyed the uh, podcast. And what about the quote about the best teachers are those who show you where to look, not those who tell you what to see? I, I sort of struggle a bit with it because I think I've got little children, right? So I'm probably guilty of telling them 
where to look and what to see all too often. I don't know quite where to draw the line about where to look, but not telling them exactly what to see. Yeah, there's there's lots of research on this, Jake, around um, the, the, so this idea of a growth mindset. It's a lady called Carol Dweck, a child psychologist based at Stanford University, that talks about getting people, especially young people, to almost just embrace the process of learning, to make mistakes, because the more mistakes you make effectively, the smarter you become, the more you're likely to persevere in the face of challenges. So Gary's point is very much around giving, like creating the environment for children to, to learn, to make mistakes, to get things wrong, because that's where the real depth of learning starts to take place. I love it. Um, and I think finally, before we sign off for this week, just a, a one last mention on last week's episode with Sean Wayne. I mean, the reaction was was quite remarkable, wasn't it? I think it took a lot of people by surprise. Yeah, I mean, rugby league is um, is 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 certainly not a nationwide sport, but it's one that um, has got phenomenal levels of competitors, and um, and 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 the sport itself is a fantastic spectacle. So, I'm delighted that the sport of rugby league has has got an increased audience. But equally, I'm delighted that. Sean Wayne, somebody that's been at the forefront of this, has um, has come to people's attention, and hopefully, it does generate real interest in him and uh, and Super League in general. I love it. Well, look, mate, thanks very much. I hope the people enjoy the podcast that's on its way next week as well, and we shall continue doing what we can to inspire so many people. It's lovely to get the messages. Yeah, no, definitely. We've got some phenomenal interviews uh, with people that we've already done, and uh, we've got some really exciting guests that have uh, agreed to come on. So. Hopefully we can uh, we can keep um, giving people these messages of inspiration. Brilliant. Well, look, Damien, thank you very much for being part of the podcast. Of course, thanks to Phil Neville for his time. A huge thanks to Tom as well at Rethink Audio for his hard work. And don't forget, you can check out the High Performance Podcast on Instagram at High Performance Podcast. Damien is at Liquid Thinker. And you can also check out our High Performance Podcast YouTube channel for extended versions of all the interviews that we've done so far. Thanks so much for being involved and for being part of the High Performance journey. Have a brilliant week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.